And what's going on, everyone? Welcome back to the program. It is Not Your Average Boston Sports Podcast. I am your host, Garrett Hayden. As always, you can follow the podcast on Twitter and on Facebook, and you can listen on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. Good to be back with you on this on this Monday. It's uh, probably the best time to be a, a sports fan at this moment. You know, you got the NFL draft that happened this weekend. You got the uh, playoffs for the NBA in full swing. Stanley Cup playoffs uh, kicking off tonight. So uh, a lot of stuff to get to today um, on the pod. Obviously, a lot of Boston sp- sports things uh, to get to as well. So really looking forward to uh, this week's episode. Um, would like to um, extend a thank you to uh, ben Baptiste for uh, returning to Guest Friday last week as we were able to talk uh, about the uh, first round of the NFL draft. Um, if you had seen, I had uh, done a Facebook Live video on Saturday as kind of a recap of all the Patriots picks. Obviously, we'll talk more about that um, when we talk about the Patriots, but um that will be later in the show. Bruins, Celtics, I think with uh, both teams in the playoffs, they kind of take precedence. So uh, that's where we're going to start. We're going to start with uh, the Celtics today. Obviously, uh, coming off a pretty frustrating and uh, disappointing loss um, in Game 1 of the conference semis to the Bucks uh, yesterday afternoon. Um, just kind of a, a game that just nothing really seemed to go right. Uh, for the Celtics. You know, I think it was um, unfortunately one of those games that I think the offense just was completely out of sync. And I think you've not seen this team play like that in a very long time. You know, I think we've been lucky to see that this team has performed really well over the last few months and, you know, putting themselves, catapulting themselves, you know, to a top two seed in the Eastern Conference. So, you know, I think that when a game like this happens, you know, after a team is played so well for so long, it's surprising. And I think, you know, Jalen Brown put it perfectly. You know, the Celtics got punched in the mouth yesterday. And I think that games like this are going to happen. It's the playoffs. You know, you're not going to go 16-0. You're going to have bad losses. You're going to have losses like this. You're going to have losses that you lose on a buzzer beater. You're going to have losses that you get blown out by 20 points. It's just kind of the nature of how things work. So I think... I'm not ready to, you know, go uh, jump off a cliff after losing the first game. But I think there definitely were some things that happened yesterday that I think are a little bit concerning. And I think the Celtics want to be very careful to not to make sure that none of these things that happened yesterday continue to be a trend, you know, for the rest of the series if they want to win. So I think just looking at this game from an overall perspective, you know, I think offensively, they just were bad. You know, I think that that's, it's pretty simple to say that, you know, they were bad. They haven't scored that few points in in months. So I think clearly, you know, a lot of missed shots, guys were just, you know, not in rhythm. You know, I think that was kind of the, the, the most noticeable thing yesterday that I think no one seemed to be in rhythm it seemed to be kind of just a clunky offensive game where, you know, no one really had a lot of success early. 
you know, the Celtics shot 33% for the game, you know, that tells you right there that no one really got into any type of rhythm at all. You know, you look at the Celtics plus minuses, you know, Marcus Smart was the only starter that was a plus player, you know. So I think just kind of looking at this game, it just tells you that the Celtics just couldn't do anything offensively. You know, too many turnovers in this game. Um, it really seemed to plague them, especially in the first half. 18 turnovers for the game. Jalen Brown at seven. Um, it was a pretty ugly game for him. Um, you know, too many three-pointers. The Celtics attempted, you know, 50 in the game. You know, I didn't think that, you know, it, it was it was a weird game because they felt like the Celtics got a lot of open looks on threes. And I think a lot of them just didn't go down. You know, Jalen shot three for nine, Peyton Pritchard two for eight, Tatum and Horford four for nine, you know, Marcus one for six. I think at a certain point you have to recognize that the shots aren't falling and you need to figure out another way for the offense to be able to score points, you know, get easy baskets. You know, that was the one thing that I did notice that the Celtics were not able to get easy baskets in transition because I think oftentimes that's what, that is something that, you know, can kickstart someone like Tatum or Brown, that they can get quick baskets in transition to kind of get themselves going. And so I think that really did not happen at any point yesterday. The Celtics really were unable to get out in transition and kind of get anything going, you know, in terms of a fast break offense. So I think you would think that that's what the Celtics are going to try to do game two. Um, the length of the Bucks definitely bothered the Celtics in terms of driving to the basket. And so I think that's something that they need to find some way to be able to score on the interior, because if they can't, this is going to be a short series. You know, they could lose in five games if they play offensively like they did in game one. Um, I think the biggest thing with someone like Brooke Lopez, for example, you know, if he was a big problem, is the Celtics have to get him in rotation. They have to target him in pick and rolls. They have to do something so that he is not like the last line of defense and you're trying to, you know, go up for a layup and he's there, you know, blocking your path. They need to do something to force him away from the basket so that he's not like the guy standing in the paint, you know, and Jalen and Jason go to the basket and he just gets in their way and blocks the shot. You know, I think one of the other things offensively is you saw the Celtics do a lot of driving and kicking yesterday, but it didn't seem like they did it with a lot of purpose. You know, I think driving and kicking works when you're going to the basket and you're getting layups, you're going to the basket and you're getting fouled, you're going to the basket and, you know, you miss shots and Robert Williams is there to clean it up. And that really was not happening. You know, the Celtics were pretty much just driving into the paint, driving it into the paint, kicking it out and guys were missing shots. And I think driving and kicking works a little bit more effectively if you can establish that you can score at the rim. And so I think that kind of leads into another thing that I think the Celtics need to do a better job of in game two is trying to get Robert Williams more involved offensively, you know, and whether that means throwing up some alley-oops to him, you know, getting the ball to him underneath, you know, driving and drawing two defenders and, you know, getting an easy pass to him underneath, you know, I think that they 
need to do a better job of kind of getting him involved offensively. He only had six points in 22 minutes. You know, I think that, sure, there could be something to be said for, you know, not limiting his minutes, but I think he still is not 100% back from that torn meniscus. You know, I think that, yes, he had the week off, and that probably helped, but I think it's clear that he is not, he's not 100%. You know, he's probably close to 90%, but I think they need him at full health, and they need to be able to involve him a little bit more offensively. Um, you know, guys were guys were in foul trouble, it seemed like, a lot of that game. Um, so I think, you know, oftentimes that has a lot to do with the officiating, but I think this was not a game that the officiating was a problem. You know, it's one of those games that I think it's it's concerning when they have games like this because it always seems like in games that they struggle offensively, oftentimes they're complaining to the officials too much. And that's the kind of one thing that could derail this team in this round that, you know, the Bucks end up just being too frustrating and, you know, the Celtics can't get past it. You know, I think that obviously this team is not the Brooklyn Nets. This team does not play defense like the Brooklyn Nets. You know, this team is pretty much as tough as the Celtics, maybe even tougher on the interior. And they basically are, you know, daring you to score. You know, when they have Giannis and they have Brooke Lopez on the floor, it's basically like, okay, we have two of the best interior defenders. Try to score. And I think, you know, something could be said for the fact that the Celtics had not played in six days and, you know, were a little bit rusty offensively. Um, and maybe we're not in full rhythm offensively. But I think, you know, this is a series that cannot get out of hand. The Celtics have to win game two. I think that the Celtics cannot afford to go down 0-2 and then go to travel somewhere. You know, I think this is a series that if they're not careful and they don't play better offensively, you know, they could they could be going home quick. And I think that, obviously, we all expect that this Celtics team is going to go deep in the playoffs. But, you know, you're going up against a Bucks team that is as motivated, if not more motivated, than you are. You know, they're going to force the Celtics to play with force. The Celtics have to, you know, have some type of mental toughness that they're going to come back and be like, okay, you punched us in the mouth game one, but we're going to come back with a counter punch of our own. So I think that offensively, you want to see more ball movement. You want to see effective ball movement. You know, I think that a multi multiple times yesterday, the Celtics are passing the ball around the perimeter five or six times. And it's like, there's a difference between ball movement and ball movement that actually is effective. You know, you want to move the defense. You know, that's how that's how you're going to beat someone like Brook Lopez is you is if you can move the ball, move him out of position, get him in rotation so that he's not the guy that's standing between you and the basket when you go up for a layup or a dunk. So I think that's one of the biggest keys is can the Celtics try to get Brook Lopez in rotation so that it's easier for them to attack the basket. You know, I think he's one of those guys that really you don't want to be challenging at the rim, but I think that there are ways that you can beat him. You can force him to defend out on the perimeter. You know, I think this is a series that there are going to be adjustments pretty constantly. You know, I was kind of surprised that the Celtics were not able to 
be a better offensive team in the second half. Um, but I think, again, six days off is six days off. And I think it's it's tough. You know, it's there's a lot of rust involved. And I think that being rusty against a team like the Bucks is never a good combination because I think as much as the Bucks were motivated last year to win a title, they're even more motivated to win it again. So this is not going to be an easy series. You know, this is not going to be a sweep. I think anyone trying to tell you that, you know, oh, this series is going to be easier because there's no Chris Middleton, you're kidding. You know, they're kidding themselves. You know, I think that, of course, no Middleton helps the Celtics because he's been a Celtics killer in the past. You know, he's been someone that's had no problem, you know, giving the Celtics fans nightmares with his shot-making ability. But, you know, the Bucks are kind of as as dangerous or even more dangerous without him because they think it does open up the floor for a couple of other guys. And so I think the Celtics have to adjust. And I think, sure, the Bucks not having Chris Middleton helps the Celtics, but it's not going to help you if you are going to play complacent and be like, oh, they don't have Chris Middleton. We don't have to try as hard. It's like, no, if anything, Giannis and the Bucks are going to be even harder to beat because they are going to be playing at an incredibly high level. You know, Giannis had a triple-double yesterday. Didn't even really shoot the ball very well. The Celtics, I honestly thought, didn't do a bad job defensively in this game. You know, this was a game that they just could not get anything going offensively. So that, at least, I think is a silver lining that the Bucks only scored 101 points on pretty much any given night. The Celtics should have no problem scoring more points than that. So I think that's at least something to feel positive about, that, okay, you just played a bad offensive game and you can come back and win the next game. But, you know, it's a very important game that they come back and win game two. The Celtics are going to need more from Jalen Brown. They're going to need more from Jason Tatum. I think that both of them are going to need to adjust and find better ways to be able to get involved offensively. Uh, and so look for one of those guys to have a really strong uh, first quarter in game two if the Celtics are going to, you know, get back in the series. So I think, as I said, Robert Williams, you'd like for him to be more of a factor offensively in game two. So we'll take, we'll uh, definitely take a look at that in game two and see if that changes uh, the Celtics obviously dealing with a couple of injuries, but not bad enough that it's going to keep guys out of the lineup. You know, I think Jalen Brown tweaked something in his hamstring, but from what I understand, it's not the same injury that he had that lingered throughout the season. Apparently, it's a different part, but, you know, clearly you could tell that maybe he wasn't exactly 100%, but I think if he's good enough to be out there, he's good enough to be a factor. So I think you got to expect more from him. Marcus Smart obviously got banged up a few times uh, in yesterday's game, but you know, I think that's going to happen. The, the way that he plays, the way that he gives his all, it's bound to happen. But the Celtics really uh, cannot afford to lose any of these guys for any, any amount of games, really, in the playoffs. So just something to keep your eye on is to make sure that nothing you know, happens and nothing becomes... Uh, worse or more of a concern for the Celtics. So uh, game two of the Celtics Bucks tomorrow night, seven o'clock on TNT, I believe. So game two at the Garden at seven, I believe seven is the start time.
We'll just take a double check look at that. Yes, 7 o'clock on Tuesday night, Celtics-Bucks game two. So now we will move on to talk about the Boston Bruins, who are in the postseason also, starting their first-round series tonight in Carolina. Bruins taking on the Hurricanes in game one, 7 o'clock. Nesson in the ESPN, so... Uh, yeah, it's the best time of the year if you're a hockey fan. The uh, day of the NHL playoffs. I'm really looking forward to our guest later this week and guest Friday. will be joined by Sean Montgomery, who has been on the pod before. He's a former uh, Suffolk University hockey player. So uh, we'll be talking about the Bruins and what we have noticed from the series so far. So we'll probably be recording that interview on Thursday, which will be after the first two games have been played. So we'll kind of give you some thoughts as to that. But, you know, as we've been saying on this podcast, it has seemed pretty likely that the Bruins are going to play the Carolina Hurricanes. That's exactly what happened. Uh, The Bruins losing their regular season finale, uh, so guaranteeing that they finished in that first wildcard position, taking on Carolina. And obviously, yeah, I think we all know the, the refrain that a lot of people have said that, oh, you know, you've lost... Three games to Carolina this season, combined score of 16 to 1. And, you know, I think, yeah, that could tell you right there that, okay, the Bruins are at a serious disadvantage. But let me tell you why that's not the case. The Bruins, the first game that they played against Carolina, sixth game of the year, Bruins lose 3 0 in Carolina. Now, I'll be honest, I don't really put a lot of stock into the sixth game of the season. You know, I think, honestly, I kind of am like, the first 10 games of the season really don't take much stock in that. You know, the second loss the Bruins suffered was the uh, game that Willie O'Ree was honored pregame to Karask in net for that game, gave up five goals in the first period. Bruins lose 7-1 to one in that game. You know, to Karask obviously is not on this roster anymore. You know, you lose pretty badly. And then the third game you play against them is 6-0 in February. Brad Marchand, Patrice Bergeron, not available in that game. You know, so the Bruins have not played Carolina since the trade deadline is kind of the point that I'm trying to make. And I think even teams that play each other, you know, days or weeks before the playoffs, those games don't really mean much. So I guess like the point is the Bruins and Hurricanes, it's not going to be that lopsided of a series. You know, this is not something where it's like, oh, the Bruins are a colossal underdog. They are an underdog in this series. I mean, I think that it's pretty clear to say that, but I think that it's not as much of a it's not as much of a disadvantage as people might think. So, you know, this is a Carolina team that's been one of the best in the league the entire year. They kind of leveled off a little bit toward the end of the regular season, but they have won their last six in a row. So this is a team that's coming in, playing some good hockey, and this is a team that this is going to be a difficult series. You know, I think that, as I've said many times over the last few weeks, no playoff opponent in the Eastern Conference is going to be, you know, easier. There's no opponent that you can look at and say, oh, you know, the Bruins might do better against this team. You know, historically, the Bruins have done well against Toronto, but they're a better team this year. You know, do I think they get out of the first round? Maybe not, but I don't know if that's a team that you can point at and say, oh, that's a team that I want to play. Um, But I think Carolina's tough. You know, they're a team that they play hard. They play aggressive. They, you know, forecheck really aggressively. 
you know, they're going to be pressuring the Bruins quite a bit. And so I think the Bruins have to be good in their defensive zone if they're going to win this series. You know, turnovers are going to happen. It's just inevitable. But can the Bruins limit those turnovers in key moments in the game? And that means last minute of periods. That is something that's really killed the Bruins in games this season is giving up goals in the last minute of periods. They've been able to win some of those games, but Carolina is not a team that you can afford to give them opportunities like that. This is a team that is going to bury you if you give them extra opportunities. So the Bruins have to be at their absolute best defensively in this series. Um, And so I think, obviously, when you mentioned the trade deadline, the Bruins brought in Hampus Lindholm. And so I think that is going to help the Bruins be a little bit better defensively that they can handle Carolina's aggressive forechecking. And having someone like Lindholm, it also opens up the ice for Charlie McAvoy that he can make take more chances offensively. You know, one of the drawbacks of the Carolina Hurricanes playing really aggressive on the forecheck means that the Bruins can take advantage of that. You know, that there are guys that can take chances and try to you know, take advantage of a team playing over-aggressively. You know, not that the Bruins want to turn this series into a track meet where you're going up and down the ice. I think the Bruins kind of want to make the series a little more of a low-scoring kind of rough-and-tumble series. But I think the Bruins could absolutely take chances like that, you know, if the timing is right, if there are too many guys that are, you know, aggressively forechecking and, you know, there's a bounce that, that goes your way. And so I think... If they're going to be rush opportunities in this series, three-on-twos, two-on-twos, two-on-ones, the Bruins have to make those chances count, you know, and I think the Bruins sometimes can overpass in situations like that. They can, you know, look for the perfect play instead of just taking a simple play, and so I think there are not going to be a lot of rush opportunities in this series because I think both teams are probably going to want to play kind of a slower pace. But if you get those chances, you have to take advantage. And I think the Bruins, especially being an underdog, especially playing on the road for the first two games, you have to take advantage of these opportunities. You know, the power play has to be able to score a decent clip. I know Carolina is one of the best. They actually have the best penalty kill in the league. But you need to be able to make a difference on the power play. Um, because I don't know, five on five, if the Bruins are really going to have an advantage, you know, it might be at a disadvantage. So I think playing well in the special teams is really, really important for the Bruins. Um, make no mistake, you know, this is not a series that is going to be easy. You know, I said that at the top, like this is a series that the Bruins are the underdog, you know, they're probably going to be the underdog against any team that they play in the playoffs. And so I think People need to temper their expectations a little bit that this Carolina team's good. You know, this Carolina team could win the championship based on, you know, how deep they are, how much talent they have. You know, I think, you know, not trying to say that, oh, you should be okay with the Bruins losing in the first round, but, you know, this is a team that's really good. You know, the Bruins are not in a position where they're, you know, a top seed in the division or they're you know, the President's Trophy winners, it's like, no, Bruins are, Bruins are underdogs. You know, this is not going to be a series that you're going to look at and say, oh, the Bruins 
should win this no problem. I don't see this series being anything less than six or seven games. And I think one of the areas that the Bruins could have the advantage is in goal. And that's kind of the next uh, thing that I wanted to take a look at is the goalie matchup, at least for the start of the series. Uh, the Hurricanes will be starting Fonte Ranta, who is their backup. Frederick Anderson suffered a lower body injury, so I think he is not available to start the series, so he will not be in net for game one at least. Possibility he could return later in the series, but there's really no news on that. So that at least is a positive, because Frederick Anderson has had good numbers against the Bruins this season in the past. And so I think for the Bruins, avoiding him is great, but it'll be interesting to see when he can return. You know, Ronta, I think, named the game one starter. You know, solid backup. Had a pretty good season. You know, a couple shutouts, 15-5-4 on the season, 245 goals against, a 9-12 save percentage. You know, pretty good backup numbers, but I think if the Bruins can take advantage of that situation, that could give them a huge, you know, leg up. But then on the other hand, the Bruins also have goaltending that I think is a bit of a question mark. And I'm not going to say that, you know, Olmark and Swayman haven't been good this season because they both have been great. You know, Swayman won seventh player, had a had an excellent rookie season. You know, Olmark has been playing really well down the stretch, but there's no postseason experience with either of these guys. And so I think that leads to some questions about like, okay, you know, Linus had his highest workload of his career this season. You know, he was playing really well, but is, is he going to get tired? You know, Swayman kind of slowed down in, in the second half or kind of the last couple months of the season. So, you know, it's kind of, it's hard to know what to expect of both of these guys. I think the Bruins are going to use both of these guys in the playoffs. Olmark, I think, will start game one, but I think you probably will reassess where things are after game two. You know, if the series is tied, if you're down 2-0, if you're up 2-0, you know, I think that if the Bruins are down 2-0, they probably would change the goalie. You know, it probably depends on how game one goes. You know, if the Bruins get blown out and lose 5-1, well, Mark gives up four goals, you know, you might be more apt to switch the goalie. But I think... It's definitely, it's definitely a fluid situation. You know, you'll see, the Bruins will see what happens, but I think, you know, based on how Olmark has played recently, the Bruins could be at an advantage here that with how well he's been playing, you could take advantage of Carolina's, you know, goaltender situation. So I think that's an area that the Bruins could certainly have the upper hand. You know, I really don't know about Anderson's status the rest of the series. You know, I think that the longer that he's out, the more this series favors the Bruins. But, you know, if he's back game two or game three, it really isn't something that the Bruins can take advantage of. So, you know, like I said, this is a team in Carolina that is going to try to shut the Bruins down, try to shut down their rush game. And so scoring goals on odd man rushes is going to be really, really important. You know, if the Bruins get great opportunities, they have to capitalize and they have to shoot the puck. You know, I know that Taylor Hall has had an excellent year with assists, but he needs to shoot. You know, he's a guy that needs to shoot. I think that Marshan's a guy that sometimes can be guilty of overpassing. I think that 
in the series that you're an underdog, you cannot afford to pass up chances. You know, you need to be able to, you know, like this is a series that I think playing as an underdog, the mentality has to be different. The mentality has to be be to, to be more aggressive offensively, to take more shots. And I don't mean taking shots at every opportunity because sometimes that, you know, you can shoot pucks into guys' legs. You know, you can get your shots blocked really easily. But I think if the Bruins have clear opportunities, they need to take them. So I'm going to be very curious to see what game one looks like, if the Bruins are going to get a lot of opportunities. Um, but I think defensively, the Bruins have to be on their toes and really have to be smart with the puck in their own zone. So taking a look at some other Bruins thoughts here, um, I think that despite Carolina being a very, very good hockey team, I think the Bruins are in a better spot playing in the Metro playoffs. You know, falling into a bracket with Carolina, Pittsburgh, and Toronto, or Pittsburgh and uh, the Rangers, is a little bit more desirable than having to play, you know, Tampa Bay or Toronto and Florida. So I know that Carolina's a tough team, and I'm not trying to say that they're an easier team to play, but I do think that the Bruins tend to kind of match up a little bit better with Carolina in terms of their personnel. You know, goaltending obviously is going to be a big story in the series, but if the Bruins can get decent goaltending, if they can score timely goals, if they can score a couple power play goals, they can steal a game in Carolina. I feel really good about their chances to win this series. And so I think if the Bruins can get out of this first round series, the matchup with the Rangers or Pittsburgh is certainly more desirable than, you know, having to play a Tampa Bay or a Florida you know, two teams that I'm pretty scared of. So, you know, it may not mean anything. The Bruins might lose in the first round, but I think if they can get out of the first round, I feel better about their chances against the Rangers or Pittsburgh than I would about any other team um, in the Atlantic. So one other thought that I thought was interesting, uh, Chris Wagner was called up from Providence and played the season finale in Toronto. That was his first game with the Bruins all season. I think he had been in Providence the entire year, played 62 games, had 27 points. He obviously was kind of a mainstay on the Bruins' fourth line for the last few years, but he was brought in for the final regular season game, and as I understand, he will be on the Bruins' uh, postseason roster for the beginning of the playoffs. Now, you know me, I'm typically someone that doesn't like to complain often about you know, lineup decisions or player decisions, but this is something that doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. Now, I will say, just on a personal level, I think it's awesome for Chris because I think he has paid his dues playing in Providence. You know, he didn't have to do that. He could have demanded a trade. He could have, you know, gotten really upset at having to play in the minors, but credit to him, he played, was a good, I think it was a good veteran player to be around some of the young guys. And so I think on a personal level, I'm happy for Chris and I'm happy that he's getting this opportunity, but I just think he's not someone that you really kind of know what you're going to get with this season. And I know that, yes, he has played a lot for the Bruins, has played, you know, 35 playoff games. So he's got plenty of experience, but I guess 
I guess I just am like annoyed that, you know, they drop some or they send someone like Mark McLaughlin down, who I feel like has played really well when he's been in the lineup. And I think he's a lot more of a versatile player than Chris Wagner. And to Chris's credit, you know, he plays physical, gives the Bruins another kind of added physical guy that, you know, could be a big help in a series, in a series like this. But I just like, I don't know, there's something about this move that just is like, it's kind of head scratcher because I think you have McLaughlin who has the ability to play, you know, in a bunch of spots in the lineup. You know, really the only spot you're going to put Wagner is, is at Wagner on, or the only spot you're going to put him in is on the fourth line, you know, and his job is to be you know, physical presence, a guy who can lay some big hits. But I just feel like someone like McLaughlin has a skill set that's a little bit more broad than someone like Chris Wagner. So, you know, ultimately it may not really matter because I think the Bruins have a pretty good bottom six, and I think their bottom six group is in a better spot than it was a year ago. So it may not matter, but I guess I just was kind of not not annoyed by it, but I guess I just was kind of confused as to why they did this. And you know, I think it's I think it's great for Chris. I think that the Bruins definitely looked into his postseason experience. When you look at you know twelve games each in eighteen nineteen and nineteen twenty, played eleven games for the playoffs, or played eleven games in the playoffs last year as well. So you know, I think it's. It's an interesting move. I think it makes sense. You know, good for him. I'm happy for him. But, you know, we'll we'll see what he can bring. You know, if he is inserted into the lineup, very curious to see uh, where he would go if the situation does present itself. Um, so I think we will return to the NHL, take a look at the uh, postseason matchups. We'll make a prediction for the Bruins Hurricane series. Uh, but we'll do that later in the podcast. And then we'll also take a look at the NBA playoffs as well. So now we will take a look at the Patriots. I know that I uh, gave a lot of you kind of a rundown of the Patriots picks. Um, you can go watch the uh, Facebook Live that I did on Saturday. I did share it on my personal page, so you can go check that out on Facebook. But for those of you that uh, know about their find out, found out about this podcast, on Twitter or anywhere else. I think I'll just give you guys kind of some of my final thoughts on this draft weekend. So, you know, as Ben and I talked about on Friday, I think certainly the first round pick was a bit of a surprise. You know, I think looking at the kind of positions of need that the Patriots had, in our opinion, it kind of was a little surprising to see the Patriots go offensive line in round one. You know, I think I have no qualms about the player player himself. You know, Cole Strange seems like a guy who could start right away. You know, play one of those guard positions. Great physical physical attributes with this guy. You know, he's quick. He showed out really well at the combine. Played at the Senior Bowl. You know, I just will say, just without, just right away, if you guys have seen that clip of. Cole Strange getting knocked over by a defensive lineman in a practice drill. If you have seen that video and you've seen the way that uh, certain people are trying to frame Cole Strange, um, I will just tell you that 
uh, you shouldn't read too much into a video of a practice drill showing someone else, you know, bowling over Cole Strange. You shouldn't read too much into that. And if you do, you know, it's practice. It's not a game. I feel like Alan Iverson. <laughs> but it's just like, I don't know. It just is like, are we really just using one clip to be like, oh, this pick sucks? Because look, someone in a practice drill knocked him down. It's just like, I don't know. It's just his like, you have certain, it's like, and I've said this on this podcast plenty of times. There are a lot of people in the Boston media that have certain access to grind and kind of make things pretty obvious in terms of things that they don't like and will try to frame things in certain ways. So I kind of just got really annoyed when I saw that because it's like, who cares? It's practice. You know, like, why, why does that matter? You know, it just is, again, people with access to crying. So that's really all I'm going to say about that. But I think that, you know, some people were surprised at this pick. I think some people had Cole Strange as a second or a third round pick. But the Patriots reasoning, I think, was that he was not going to last very long in the second round. And I think that there are some people that do agree with that statement. Um, so I think, you know, don't really have an issue with the pick. You know, I think the Patriots definitely needed a little bit of help on the interior of the offensive line. So, you know, it be interesting to see what he can do um, in training camp. You know, someone someone brought up to me that, oh, you know, he and Christian Barmore are probably going to battle a lot in, in training camp, which I think is a positive because I think, you know, you can see both guys kind of pushing each other and trying to make each other better. So I'm really looking forward to you know, seeing those battles if they end up taking place um, in off-season workouts and training camp or, or what have you. So the rest of the draft, I think the Patriots addressed some of the speed concerns on defense with a couple of a couple of defensive packs with the uh, last name Jones. Patriots making back-to-back picks, Marcus Jones out of Houston and then Jack Jones out of Arizona State. Pretty... Pretty interesting coincidence with those picks. And then you add in Jonathan Jones. Patriots will have three defensive backs next year with uh, the last name Jones. So that will be a pretty, pretty interesting, um, especially if all three of those guys get into a game at some point. I think that will be pretty hilarious. Um, but I think Marcus Jones, great speed, has the ability to be a kickoff returner, I think, in, in addition to being a cornerback, cornerback, so I'm curious to see what he can bring there. Patriots obviously lost Gunnar Olszewski in free agency, so there's definitely a, a spot for, for Marcus to be possibly at least getting some tryouts as, as a uh, kick returner. Uh, Tyquan Thornton, the Patriots' second-round pick. A lot of speed on this guy, I think, uh, unofficially had a 4.2840 time, so... He's a guy who's very fast, I think has decent hands, maybe not as strong of a, of a route runner, but, you know, as I said in the Facebook Live video, he's a guy that has great speed that can open up lanes for, you know, kind of some underneath passes or, you know, taking an extra defender with him if he goes down the field and is really fast. So, you know, curious to see how that plays out. Patriots obviously taking a couple of running backs, which was a little surprising to me, but... You know, I think James White, one-year deal coming off the hip injury. Damian Harris is in a contract year. 
you know, Ramondre Stevenson did play great last year, but missed some games. So I think running back in addition to offensive line, in my opinion, is a position where they think you need as much depth as you can possibly get. Because, you know, you never know when guys could go down. You know, it's a position that oftentimes is a war of attrition. So if you have as many healthy bodies as you can get, you know, that's huge. You know, I also think Pierre Strong is a guy who has the ability to be a decent receiving back. You know, could put himself into the James White category. Because I think James White, you know, likely is probably his last season in New England. So I think it makes sense to try to develop that next guy who might be, you know, third down back or a guy that can be in there when you throw screen passes or things like that. So I think Pierre Jones, a little bit more of a pass catcher. He's also a really good runner, you know, has good has good speed. Yeah, it can, um, but also can be a physical runner as well, uh, which I think is also true about the other running back that they took, uh, Kevin Harris from South Carolina. There's another same last name with the same position thing that the Patriots seem to uh, seem to prioritize at the draft uh, with Damian Harris and now Kevin Harris in the backfield. So, you know, Harris kind of seems to, this Harris at least seems to kind of be more of a kind of a physical back or a physical running back, did have some, uh, some back issues um, at South Carolina, but did have a really good game in their bowl game as he had 182 rushing yards. So kind of curious to see what the Patriots do with him. Um, the Patriots obviously taking a couple of offensive linemen with their final two picks, Andrew Stuber out of Michigan and Chasen Hines from LSU. So curious about these two guys. It seems like they're pretty versatile, and I think the Patriots seem to address versatility or seem to emphasize versatility and speed, which is huge. And I think it's really important this day and age in the NFL where, you know, speed is kind of the name of the game. And if you have guys who can play multiple spots, can kind of fill multiple roles, that's really huge as well. So really excited about what they did in terms of, you know, offensive line, cornerback, emphasize speed on defense, which is really something that they need. Um, the Patriots also picked up Sam Roberts from Northwest Missouri State. He is a defensive tackle. Really good uh, performance numbers out of him. He is a D2 player, but I think is a guy who has the ability to make um, an impact and maybe a surprise impact at the NFL level. So curious to see uh, what he can do. So the last two things I was going to say about the draft is two things that kind of, I think, surprised some people. I think one position, uh, linebacker, surprised some people that they did not address. I kind of was surprised as well. But, you know, I think it's easy to forget that the Patriots do have a couple of guys who did not play all of last year, whether they had injuries or what have you. The Patriots, you know, drafted Cameron McGrone out of uh, Michigan last year didn't play the entire years. He was rehabbing a torn ACL, I believe, uh, but he'll be in the fold this year. Anthony Jennings, the Patriots' uh, third third round pick, I think, out of Alabama a couple years ago. He missed the entire season last year, so he'll be back. I think Raquan McMillan, who the Patriots signed as a free agent last year, also missed the entire year. So you have 
you know, three guys right there who are linebackers who I think could be able to help that position. And so I think the Patriots are a team that they actually are pretty confident in their linebacker group. And I think confident in those guys' ability to, you know, be productive players and be able to be guys who can fit into their defense uh, pretty easily. So I think that might be why the Patriots did not address linebacker, but I think it's not anything to get super worried about. Um, and then I think the other question, the Patriots drafting uh, Bailey Zappi out of Western Kentucky, a quarterback who set, um, set uh, records for touchdown passes and... I think yards in in a season, last season, which I think he broke uh, Joe Burrow's record of touchdown passes and yards. Um, I think definitely a bit of a surprise for some people. I think just because you look at the quarterback that they picked up last year in the first round, you know that guy's pretty good. Um, so I think the reason for this is you kind of need another development, you need a development quarterback. And I think the Patriots had the thought that Jared Stidham was going to be that guy, but, you know, injuries and things just have not gone his way. And so I think, you know, the writing might be on the wall for him. And so this might be why they pick someone like Zappi, who can kind of just be that, you know, young quarterback that you can develop. You know, maybe he plays in some games, but I think, you know, this is likely a pick that maybe they try to you know, develop him a little bit and get some picks for him in a couple of years. Um, but I also just think it's good just to have another guy there. You know, Brian Hoyer is probably at the end of his rope as a player. You know, I think that he might develop more into kind of a player coach this season. And so I think, you know, hey, if worst case scenario, Mac Jones gets an injury, you know, Zappi is someone that can play and can probably play at a high level. You know, he has some similar physical traits to Mac Jones that I think the offense probably wouldn't miss too much of a beat, you know, if he went in. But, you know, again, that's worst case scenario. You know, I think that he gets a lot of looks um, in the preseason, which will be very interesting to see what he has. Uh, but by no means is this indicative of the Patriots' thoughts on Mac Jones. You know, this is not anything that like, oh, the Patriots didn't like what they saw, saw from him last year. You know, that's not what this means. So, Again, curious to see what he can do in training camp and in the preseason. So, very excited to see what he can do. The Patriots also bringing in a couple of undrafted free agents at the conclusion of the draft. Uh, Derek King, former quarterback at Miami. This was kind of interesting. I think there are some people that are like, oh my God, here we go again, another quarterback. But... Um, it seemed like Derek was a player that made it clear to teams in the drafting process that um, he is willing to play uh, multiple positions or kind of be a player that could be not just a quarterback, but could, you know, help at other positions. Because, you know, looking at his size, 5'9", 5'9", 186, that's a little too small for a quarterback, but I think the Patriots love guys who can do multiple things and be versatile. And I think, you know, hey, if, if D'Eric ends up turning out like a Julian Edelman type player, that's great. You know, not trying to say that, oh, he's going to be Julian Edelman. But I think 
the Patriots have had a history of picking up guys who, you know, come in as quarterbacks, but have the athletic ability to do multiple things. So I'm very curious to see how they plan to use uh, Derek if he does make the roster. Is he used as some kind of a gadget quarterback? We'll see, but he is a tremendous athlete. So curious to see what ends up happening with him. The Patriots also bringing in uh, LeBrian Ray from Alabama, defensive tackle. Um, yeah, the Patriots, you can never have enough defensive tackles. Um, Patriots also bringing in a punter, Jake Julian, out of Eastern Michigan. Could provide some competition to um, Jake Bailey. Patriots really like to do that. They uh, kind of like to make their specialist guys a little uncomfortable. So I'm curious to see, you know, if that ends up being a competition. I believe that Jake Bailey is in a contract year, so that could have something to do with that. So I think just some other Patriot thoughts. I think it was re reported that on the third day of the draft, Nikhil Harry was available for the trade. Obviously nothing happened, but I think with the Patriots pick of Tyquan Thornton, you know, they now have like five wide receivers. You know, I can't imagine that he stays on the team for too much longer. Be curious to see if the Patriots, you know, do trade him or move on from him be great to see if they could get a pick and a trade for him but I think if you know they weren't able to trade him over the weekend during the draft it doesn't really tell me that they're going to be able to get much for him um, I also think the same thing for Jared Stidham but who knows you know when you get closer to training camp there could be teams that get desperate for you know needing another quarterback so I guess that that could happen but you know like I said with the zappy pick I can't see Jared Stidham lasting here much longer. So, you know, it's a little bit too bad because I think Jared had, you know, opportunities here but had injuries and whatnot. So, you know, I think that they probably will be moving on. So speaking of moving on, we are going to move on to talk about the uh, lowly Red Sox who are uh, still struggling for anything offensively. It's funny, they actually did get a grand slam yesterday, but it was in the ninth inning of a nine to one game. Red Sox dropped the second of two or second of three to Baltimore yesterday, nine to five. You know, mercifully, they get an off day today after going three and seven on that road trip to uh, Tampa Bay, Toronto, and then Baltimore. The Red Sox unable to win multiple games at either of those places. Um, and it's left the team at a 9-14 and 14 mark out of the first month of the season. So, you know, obviously things have not gone their way really at all offensively. You know, really through the first month you have Devers and Bogarts who really seem to be the only guys who are hitting. It was good to see J.D. Martinez back in the lineup yesterday. Had two hits, including the Grand Slam. So, you know, maybe that's a silver lining that they can get him back in the lineup you know, I think he just has such a presence that he's able to make every other hitter in the lineup play better. So, you know, we'll see. But I think this is a team that I think really can't afford to get more behind the eight ball than they already are offensively. You know, 9-14 and 14 is not a great mark to have, but I think it is still early. You know, you're one month into the season, but I think they have to start getting some positive momentum at some point, because at some point the season could totally and completely get out of hand. So, you know, 
look for that to improve, I guess. But I think, you know, this is still a flawed baseball team that is not doing enough offensively. You know, I think that the starting pitching has honestly not been bad. You know, here and there, it's actually been, it's been solid. You know, I think that Ivaldi's been really good. It's a, it's a shame that he couldn't get the win Saturday night, but he's pitched really well. You know, I think that Rich Hill, you know, for, for his limitations, has pitched pretty well. You know, I think that Michael Waka has, you know, arguably been their second best starter this season. And then even someone like Whitlock, who's had some spot starts here and there, has been really, really good. You know, Nick Pavetta really is the only starter that's had a tough time. And I'll be honest, I don't think he pitched half bad yesterday. You know, it really is just the offense just can't can't hit with guys on base. You know, the home runs are, are down by a crazy margin. You know, the bullpen, I think, is, is hanging on. But, you know, pitching is not the issue with this team, which is kind of bizarre to say because you figured that, okay, coming into the season, they have, you know, a very similar lineup. They added Trevor Story. You know, why aren't they performing offensively? And I'll be honest, I wish I had a wish I had an explanation, but you know, really the only thing I can say is it's early and it's still early and you know, it's one month into the season. They can turn it around. I mean, you look at the talent, some of the talent they have on offense, they should be able to turn it around. But I think you know, this is a group that I think might be in need of a trade to kind of get them, get a fire lit under them. You know, maybe it involves trading someone like Bobby Dahlbeck or someone like that to kind of be like, okay, you know, we need this team to start performing. You know, not going to say that, you know, trading Bobby Dahlbeck is going to solve everything, but, you know, they could be in need of kind of an early season trade to kind of kickstart them a little bit. You know, I think maybe it's a sign of a good thing that J.D. Martinez had a couple hits yesterday in his return to the lineup, but, you know, again, it's got to be a team effort. They have to be able to perform at a decent level offensively if they're going to get back in contention uh, for the division or for the playoffs. And I know I really shouldn't be saying that on May 2nd, but, you know, here we are. 9-14 and 14 is really not where they want to be. It's not really where any of us expected them to be. You know, I think a lot of us expected them to be right back where they were last season, a 90-plus win team. Um, but I think, you know, it's something that there are guys that are still struggling out of the gate, and, you know, it is a little bit concerning. You know, you thought about someone like Dahlbeck and someone like JBJ, where you're like, okay, you know, they're not great offensive players, but if they can give you at least something, you'll be fine, and they've given you absolutely nothing. You know, I think to Jackie's defense, he's not a great hitter. You know, I think we know that. He's hit, hit some balls hard. It ended up being right at guys, but I think, you know, Dahlbeck is kind of the more surprising thing that it's almost like he has reverted back to what he was before the second half of last season. And I'll be honest, I don't really see a turnaround coming for him. So the Patriots, or excuse me, the Red Sox might get really impatient and, you know, look to trade him because, you know, offensively, they're getting nothing. They're not getting enough extra base hits. They're not hitting with guys in scoring position, you know, they're not hitting in any of those key situational spots. And it's really the whole lineup. So, you know, I think that hopefully a day off can help them 
you know, they do have a pretty decent homestand coming up, which uh, we'll take a look at right now. But again, as I said, like the starting rotation seems to kind of be doing all it can to kind of be like, okay, we're pitching well enough, the offense needs to pick it up. The uh, Red Sox will have six games in a row at home. They will play a three-game set against the Angels starting starting tomorrow night, and then the White Sox will come in to play the Red Sox this weekend. So two teams that I think one team has had a good start to the season. The other team has been kind of like the Red Sox, kind of off to a disappointing start. So maybe the Red Sox can get it going against these two teams, get them some momentum before they travel to Atlanta, play Houston and Seattle uh, later this month. So, you know, it's, again, you know, I think that there's not really a a grand kind of big fix to this lineup. They just need to start hitting and they need to hit with guys in scoring position. They need to start hitting in those key situations because if they don't and they continue to play like this offensively, you know, things could get pretty ugly in the next few weeks if they continue to lose games at the rate that they're losing them. So it's just things need to come together for this team um, very quickly because I think at a certain point, the rotation can't keep having to try to bail them out. Like at a certain point, you know, the starting pitching is going to suffer and it's going to go through a tough stretch. And if your offense still can't score runs, you know, that's kind of a huge recipe uh, for disaster for this team. So be interesting to see if this off day helps them. Red Sox back in action on Tuesday night against the Angels. So we'll take a look more at Major League Baseball later in the podcast. Some notes that do actually involve the Red Sox uh, opponents this week. So we will move on to talk about the other local team that uh, hopefully is getting back on the right foot. Uh, the Revolution winning two to nothing. Saturday night against Inter-Miami, the Revolution uh, getting revenge for their loss against Miami a couple of weeks ago, uh, 3-2 to two in Miami, Revs win 2-0 at Foxborough. A lot of great things happened in this game for the Revs. Uh, Damian Rivera, a former Revs Academy player and a Revs 2 player, the Revs 2 are there, or the Revolution's like... Uh, minor league team, if you will. Uh, Damian gets his first career goal and his first career start scoring in the first minute. The Revs end up winning two to nothing. So a big win for them, you know, for a couple of reasons. Great for Rivera to get a goal, but Matt Turner was back in goal uh, for the first time this season. So the Revs get a big boost uh, whenever he's in the lineup. So, you know, hopefully that can help the team, you know, help them in terms of feeling like they have the regular guys back that, you know, it's kind of a, a feeling of like relief that, okay, here's a guy that's back in here. We know exactly the type of game that he plays. You know, we know what to expect, you know, and no disrespect to Brad Knighton or Earl Edwards, who I actually thought did as well as they could have at the early part of the season. Um, but I think there's something to be said for getting someone back in the lineup that you're familiar with that you're familiar with and you're familiar playing with. So great to see Matt back in action. Amazing to see uh, Damian get his first goal. That was uh, quite an exciting moment for him. 
I'm curious to see what the rest of the season means for him. As he was in uh, the midfield, you've seen a couple of younger players get some moments, uh, get some starts, get some games in at the early part of the season. Um, I think mainly in the attacking group with Gustavo Bo, I think still dealing with an injury. So, you know, always good to get those young guys in. You know, the Revs, I think, are a team that I think they're in a position where, you know, they're going to hopefully compete for a championship and they want to have a team that is full of guys who have been there and done that. But I also think having some guys who can perform for the future of this team is also really important because, you know, these talented rosters are not going to last forever. So good to see Damien get some opportunities. Um, Justin Rennix obviously has gotten some opportunities really early in the season as well. So just all around a great win for the Revs on Saturday night. Adam Buxa also finding the back of the net, and hopefully that can you know, help the Revs' offense be a little bit more consistent. You know, I think that the majority of the games this season, defense has kind of been the issue for the Revs, but I also think that offensively they've kind of struggled to get into a rhythm, and so hopefully Adam getting another goal on a great header is really a great setup by the Revolution on that second goal. It can kind of you know, get them going, get them into a point where they feel that they're confident being able to score, you know, big goals. They have their goalie back, so hopefully they can get the team on the right track, you know, and I know that that's not going to last forever because, you know, Matt Turner will be going to Arsenal at some point this summer, but hopefully the Revolution can string some wins together with him back in the lineup and get kind of some of the momentum going. Uh, one of the other things I noticed from Saturday's game, the Revolution getting Andrew Farrell and Henry Kessler back together in the starting lineup. You know, I've said my piece about uh, Omar Gonzalez quite a few times, but I think it's just nice to see you want to get some consistency there. You know, two guys that are familiar with each other, familiar playing with each other. Um, it just was good to see the two of them back together, and hopefully they can help kind of stabilize the Revs' defense that has been taken advantage of plenty of times already this season. Um, but just a good overall win for the Revs. They now get within, I think, two points of a playoff spot. They're only nine games into the season, but yeah, I think the Revs really need to get some string some wins together, start to feel good about themselves. Um, so definitely a feel-good win for the Revs. Uh, the next game for the Revolution is Saturday, a home game against the Columbus Crew at 7.30. Columbus is two points ahead of the Revolution. I think that's actually the team that they are chasing to try to get into a playoff spot. So uh, Columbus, obviously a team that the Revs are pretty familiar with. Um, so curious to see how they can do in that game. I think that, you know, as we said, getting momentum, stringing wins together is something that's something that's really important for this team. So I think that's probably it for the Revs. We're going to move on to the uh, national national stuff, if you will. Uh, the NBA playoffs second round got underway yesterday. 
obviously with the Celtics against the uh, the Bucks. Wanted to call them the Grizzlies for some reason. Uh, the Warriors and the Grizzlies played Game One of their second round series, and Golden State came out on top, uh, one seventeen, one sixteen. Game went right down to the wire. Uh, John Morant missing a layup at the buzzer. So I think this is going to be a tremendous series. And you know, one of the things I was thinking about yesterday as I was watching is, you know, Golden State remind or excuse me, Memphis reminds me a lot of. The Celtics teams, um, the Celtics teams that went to the conference finals a couple times in a, in like a couple year span, not the bubble playoffs, but like the two other times that they went to the conference finals and, you know, overachieved like crazy. And I see a lot of similarities between the Grizzlies and those Celtics teams just in the way that they're two young teams. Two teams that have really no playoff experience and really, you know, don't understand what it's like to play pressure playoff games. Meaning that, you know, for them, it's just going out and playing basketball because they're so inexperienced. They have no idea, really, the pressure. You know, the pressure doesn't affect them. And you sometimes see that with young teams in the playoffs for any sport. You know, a team that's like, We've never been here, so we have no idea, you know, what pressure is. You know, we have no idea what that's like. So, you know, I think that this is a team that could go very far. You know, obviously, they're a team that's the second seed in the East. You know, it's not like they're the prototypical, you know, overachieving team that you sometimes see, maybe like a six, seven, or an eight seed that goes really far. But I think with how young they are, you know, it's like they can be very, very dangerous, but... Golden State's also really dangerous because they are very experienced and they know how to win. You know, it can sometimes be a double-edged sword that either you're too young to understand expectation and you go crazy and play really well, or it's the other way around that the pressure is too much. Um, but I think Memphis is a team that they have a really bright future. And, you know, if game one is any indication about how the rest of this series goes, uh, Memphis has a tremendous chance to win this series. I'm really looking forward to the rest of the series. Uh, two game ones that will take place tonight, uh, the Heat and the Sixers. Uh, the Sixers obviously losing Joel Embiid to an orbital fracture and a concussion in game six uh, against the Raptors. I still don't understand why he was in the game. A 30-point game with three minutes left, and he's still in the game. And suffers that injury and it's just like I like I don't know what you're doing like that has to be just a colossal a colossal failure by that coaching staff and I know that Joel will probably be back for games three and four I think they already talked about that he probably probably will be able to come back but it's like like what on earth are you doing like he is probably the most important player in the NBA to his team not saying that he's necessarily the best player, although I think he should win MVP, but it's like he is so important to their success. They have no chance to go far in the playoffs if he's not available. And it's just like, you're really playing with fire because they could easily be down 2 nothing against the Heat after the first two games. However, the Heat are also dealing with some injuries too. 
Kyle Lowry, I think, was going to miss the first game of the series. You know, it's starting to be a little bit of a concern for him with his hamstring. Jimmy Butler also missed a, missed a game against the Hawks in the first round. I think he missed game five. So I think, you know, that's a team that needs to get healthy. But he just the way that they play defense, the way that they play team offense, I just I can't see another team in the Eastern Conference other than maybe the Celtics being able to beat them if they're playing at their best. I think the Sixers could make this series interesting, but they have to win one of these games in Miami. And, you know, they have to have it. They have to have him be back for at least game three, you know, because this is a series that could get over very quickly. You know, if the Heat win the first two games and Joel maybe doesn't play game three and then the Heat, you know, could, could sweep them. So, you know, for the Sixers, I think, it's trying to play with that underdog mentality. This is a really important game for James Harden. I think this series is very important for his and his future with the Philadelphia 76ers. You know, if they don't win this round, you know, I'm kind of not sure what the future is going to hold for him. So, you know, we'll see. But I do like Miami in that series. Um, Dallas and Phoenix also kick off their series tonight, 10 o'clock in Arizona. This is a series that I'm very excited for. Phoenix obviously uh, took some took some licks from the New Orleans Pelicans in the first round as they were ultimately able to win in six games. But this is a team that did miss Devin Booker for the majority of that series. So it's good to have him back. He returned in game six. Um, so obviously it helps them in this series. But let me tell you, I mean, Dallas... Dallas is very similar to the Celtics. They had a very similar start to the season, and, you know, their their season track has been very similar to the Celtics, and so they're a team that got very hot in the second half of the season. You know, they lost Luka in the first-round series. He missed a couple games. They were still able to beat the Utah Jazz, so that's a team that I'm very excited to see play against the Phoenix Suns, who perhaps are the best team in the NBA, so it'll see. We'll see if Dallas is really up to the challenge. Um, you know, they're a team that, you know, other than Luka, they really don't have too many stars, but, they're, but they are a team that they play really good team basketball, especially offensively, so they could present some issues for Phoenix, but at the end of the day, I do like Phoenix to win this series, but uh, Memphis could make, the, or uh, excuse me, the Mavericks could make this very, very interesting. So I have this going to six games. Um, then as far as the other series, you know, the Celtics and the Bucks, you know, I think at the beginning of the series, I had Celtics and six, but, you know, that could uh, very well change um, if the Celtics don't figure it out offensively. Um, I do like Memphis to beat the Grizzlies, but I think it goes seven. I do think it goes seven, but I think at the end of the day, the Warriors just, the experience that they have is just going to be too much. Um, just some other notes from the NBA. Draymond Green was ejected in the Warriors-Grizzlies game on probably, I don't know, probably one of the weakest ejections, ejection calls I think I've ever seen. Uh, it really didn't seem like it was that dangerous of a play. You know, he does pull Brandon Clark's jersey. If you have seen the video, 
but it doesn't really seem like he's pulling his jersey in like an attacking way. It's more of like a to prevent him from falling to the floor. But I don't know. I just I just think that NBA officials tend to be a little bit over dramatic when plays like that happen. And look, it's hard to be an official. I understand that, but I just feel like there are situations where they tend to make things a little more dramatic than they actually are. And, you know, sure, there are situations where you don't want things to get out of hand, and I totally get that, Get that. but it really didn't seem like that in that game. So be interesting to see if Draymond faces any other, um, like, discipline, but I don't think he'd be suspicious be suspended for that. I was still shocked by the flagrant two that they gave him. He was kicked out of the game in the second quarter, I think late in the first half. But obviously the Warriors were able to rebound and win that game. So after the NBA playoffs, we'll take a quick look at the Stanley Cup playoffs that begin tonight as the uh, Bruins Hurricane Series is uh, one of four first-round series that get underway tonight. Bruins Carolina, you know, obviously we talked a good bit about that series. You know, this is hard because I go really back and forth as to who's going to win this series because I think obviously as a Bruins fan, you'd like to believe that they can win any series that they play. But, you know, Carolina is a team that is, is a team that can beat you and they can even beat you when you're playing your best. So, you know, it's hard because I do think the Bruins are playing a type or can play a type of hockey that is sound defensively and they can slow down Carolina. But there are just some games that worry me about the Bruins in terms of how they play defensively. And sometimes they're not careful. And, you know, it just is something that, you know, I think this is going to game seven and something about not having home ice in a game seven makes me very, very worried. And it's just like, I feel like those away game sevens are either games that are like one bounce in overtime and that's all you can get to win a, win a series, you know, or it's you show up to game seven and you just lay an egg. And, you know, unfortunately the Bruins have had some history with those games. Um, but I just think at the end of the day, Carolina is a little bit more of a team that I think they're, more, they're a little bit more consistent than the Bruins. So it's hard for me to pick against the Bruins, but um, I do think Carolina wins. Um, I do think Carolina wins in Game 7, which is going to be really tough to take if that does happen. But, you know, hey, I think Carolina is the better team. So, you know, I think they're going to win in Game 7. But, hey, my predictions have been known to be wrong. So I'd be excited to find out if I'm wrong. Um, in that series, Tampa Bay and Toronto play game one of that series tonight. You know, obviously, Sean and I will talk more about the playoff matchups or, you know, playoff update later in the week. Um, but I think Tampa Bay-Toronto, you know, Toronto's tough because, obviously, they've not won a playoff series since 2004. Um, and it's not it's not easy drawing a team like Tampa Bay. But here are two things that could go Toronto's way is... The karma, you know, it could just pay off for them and they finally win because they have to win at some point, you know, and Tampa Bay, they've played a lot of playoff hockey over the last two years. 
So, you know, this could be a series where maybe they just run out of gas, but I swear the way that they can the way that they can put up put up goals is just terrifying. You know, I think that if Toronto can win both of their home games to open the series, I think that they'll win the series. If Tampa Bay steals a game, I think they win the series. So I think that could be very telling in terms of how the series goes. But, I mean, it's just Toronto is absolutely a better team than they were last year. But I still just don't know. I still just have my doubts about them defensively. And I just think they spend too much of their time focusing on, you know, offensive players. And it just seems like defense is kind of left in the rear view. And you can't expect to score three or four goals a game and expect that to continue in the playoffs. Tampa Bay, certainly they're going to be tired, but I can also bet you that they really are motivated to win three Stanley Cups in a row that, you know, they could be tired, but I don't think that it happens in the first round. I do think Toronto Tampa Bay wins, and I think it's going to be a game seven, which is probably going to hurt even more if you're a Leafs fan, but that's just how I see the series going. Um, the other two games tonight, St. Louis, Minnesota, 9.30. Uh, this is going to be the best first-round series. Um, and I honestly don't think home ice makes a difference in this series. I like St. Louis. I just think Minnesota's penalty kill is just not good enough. In St. Louis, their power play is second best in the league. You know, and you can you can see the way that they move the puck. You've seen them play the Bruins a couple times recently, and it's just... There's too much talent on that power play, and I just think they're going to be able to withstand kind of the maybe questionable goaltending. I just, and look, I love Minnesota. I love the way that they play. Love Kirill Kaprizov. You know, love those grinding bottom six guys that they have. Marcus Foligno, uh, Jordan Greenway. But... I just think St. Louis is, I just think they're the better team. Um, but I also think this goes game seven. And I don't think home ice matters. I think St. Louis wins um, in game seven. Uh, Kings and Oilers kick off tonight, 10 o'clock game one. I do like the Oilers. I just think the Kings are in the playoffs a couple years too early. Um, they do have a lot of young talent. They have a lot of experienced guys who have been in the playoffs, but not having Drew Doughty is going to be a big problem, especially against Dreisaitl and McDavid. So I think the Oilers win this series fairly easily. I think it's five games. Um, could be six, but I think they are just the better team than the Kings. And I think the Kings are just in the playoffs maybe a year too early, but I think they're definitely going to be a good team in the next few years. And then the four series that kick off, on Tuesday, Pittsburgh and the Rangers at 7. This is going to be a really good series. Um, I know our good friend uh, Eric Bellier is definitely going to be watching this series with a, a vested interest that he, as he is a, a diehard Rangers fan. So uh, hopefully this series goes your way, Eric. Um, I'm really looking forward to this series because I think this is really going to tell me, are the Rangers for real? You know, is this a first-round series that they can win with ease? Is this a series that they can prove that they can be really effective at 5-on-5? Five five? You know, I think that 
before the trade deadline, they were kind of pretty dependent on the power play, and it's an unbelievable power play, but you might not get a lot more, a lot of power play chances as you did in the regular season. Um, but I will say that the additions of Vetrano and Andrew Kopp have really kind of made this team a lot more stable five on five. I do think that they win the series because I just am not, I'm not sure about Pittsburgh's goaltending situation. I think that Tristan Jari is going to miss at least the first two games. So I think this is, it's, it's hard for me to pick, but I think it's kind of easy because the Rangers, Igor Shesterkin, you know, he's been the best goalie in the league. A shoo-in for the Vesna Trophy may even get some votes for MVP this year. Um, so I think that's why I picked the Rangers. But anytime you're playing a team with Sidney Crosby, uh, it's, hard to, it's hard to count him out. But I think the Rangers just have a better team top to bottom. Um, so I think they win the series in six games. Uh, Florida and Washington start their series on Tuesday night as well. Aaron Ekblad, the Florida Panthers defenseman, it sounds like is likely to return as he had suffered a leg injury, I think a couple, I think a number of weeks ago, but it sounds like he is available. Um, this is an interesting series because obviously Florida, President's Trophy winner, they're pretty popular pick to win the Stanley Cup. I think that they're going to win the series. I don't have a problem with that. The only issue, though, is that Washington, you know the type of game they're going to play. They're going to play physical. They're going to try to, you know, lure you into taking bad penalties. You know, Tom Wilson's a, he's going to do what he's going to do. Um, and I think Washington is the type of team that could take Florida off their game. Not beat them, but I think play them really, really physically and beat them down so that by the time they get to the second round, you know, they could lose. And I think that, you know, Florida has to be able to withstand that physical play and be able to play at a high level. Um, again, I don't think that they have a problem winning this series, but I think it's going to be a lot more challenging than people think. You know, yes, Washington has a lot of questions defensively, or excuse me, in goal. And so I think, you know, that's an area where Florida could take advantage and make this series over very quickly. But, you know, Washington has a way of, you know, beating you down and playing physical. And the Bruins kind of found out the hard way last year when, you know, they pretty much are dominating the series. You know, Kevin Miller gets knocked out by a dirty hit by uh, Orlov, you know, misses the rest of the playoffs, and the Bruins bow out to an Islanders team that, you know, took advantage of the Bruins' injury issues. So I think <clears throat> this is a dangerous series for Florida, that they have to be able to, you know, withstand the physicality, not take bad penalties, um, and be able to stay focused on their game. You know, Sergei Bobrovsky, you have no idea what kind of goalie he's going to be. You know, that's the one thing that could really derail them in the playoffs. But again, I like them winning the series, but I don't think that Washington is going to make this easy, is going to make this easy for them. Um, and then the two Western Conference series on Tuesday night, Nashville, Colorado, game one, 930. I do think Colorado wins this series, but I think it's in six. I think Nashville has the ability to play Colorado really, really well. 
you know, UC Soros, I think, not going to be available for the early part of the series. Um, so I think, you know, if they had Soros available, they actually might be a popular upset pick, but, you know, they're just a team that I think is not going to be able to slow down Colorado's high-powered offense. So I think Colorado wins the series, but I also think, you know, Nashville has the ability to play physical much like Washington does. So I wouldn't be surprised if, if, you know, Nashville is able to take advantage of that and, you know, play a, play a physical game and be able to, you know, wear down Colorado by the time they get to the second round. Um, so I'm curious to see if they can do that. Um, but I do like Colorado to win this series. Um, Dallas Calgary, I think this series has the potential to be a sweep. Um, I think Dallas just, you know, squeaks into the playoffs. They're not deep enough offensively. The goaltending, I really don't have a lot of confidence in. And, you know, Calgary, in my opinion, is the best team in the playoffs. I know that that might shock some people, but uh, they are my pick to win the Stanley Cup. So, you know, I expect that they're going to have kind of an easy time with Dallas. But I think, you know, again, this is a series that could go the other way and some people might be shocked. But I just I can't see it with Dallas. I just don't think that they're a good enough team to really strike any fear into Calgary. Um, as I have the Flames, you know, going really far and, you know, winning the Stanley Cup. So um, that does actually bring me to my next thing as to, you know, who do I think is going to win the Cup? I think it's going to be Calgary. You know, I think that they have the ability to play a bunch of different styles. You know, they can play uh, a track meet type of game where they go up and down the ice. You know, Johnny Gaudreau has been unbelievable this season. You know, they have probably the top, the best top line in the league with him, Lindholm, and Matt Kachuk. They're just such, uh, they're so much fun to, so much fun to watch. And I think, you know, they can play that low scoring, you know, they can play that low scoring game. They can play that, you know, high flying 6-4 game. You know, they can play both of those games. And I think they have a defense that is sound. They have a goaltender who, you know, other than Shesterkin, I think has been the best goalie in the league with, uh, with Markstrom. So they're a team that I think they're just really deep top to bottom. The only question with the team, though, is can they score enough in the bottom six? You know, that's an area that you have to have production from. So I'd be curious to see if, you know, they can get guys like Lucic or Trevor Lewis to be able to turn back the clock and be able to be, you know, productive offensive players. You know, not like they're expecting Luch to score 10 playoff goals, but, you know, I think they do need a little bit of production out of those guys if they're if they're going to make a run to the cup, but I do like them. I think they're the most well-rounded team in the NHL, so I like them to win the cup. I have them beating the Tampa Bay Lightning, a rematch of the 2004 Stanley Cup Finals. I think Tampa Bay comes up short of their quest for a three-peat. So looking at some other notes that we have, the NFL Draft obviously uh, finished this weekend. Just wanted to take a look at some notes. There were two punters that were picked in the fourth round. <clears throat> two of them in the first four rounds. Um, 
the Steelers picking Cam Hayward's brother, Connor Hayward, on day three. So that was kind of interesting. Uh, Georgia breaking the NFL record with 15 players drafted um, in this year's draft, which is pretty crazy. Um, and then Brock Purdy, the uh, Iowa State quarterback, winning the uh, coveted Mr. Irrelevant, who uh, <laughs> that is what the uh, final pick in the draft is referred to as. But I think John Lynch there, GM said like, well, he's relevant to us. So, you know, I think that's just kind of in fun. It's not to be like, oh, like you're irrelevant. But I think like, you know, it's just to be like, oh, you know, they're your last player picked, you know, so that's always kind of interesting to see, you know, who that ends up being. So taking a look at some other notes before we finish Major League Baseball, uh, Shohei Otani, um, I think, suffered a groin issue um, yesterday, or was removed from the game with groin tightness, but it sounds like he is going to play for the Angels today, who I think wrap up their series with the White Sox at 210. So I think he is scheduled to pitch against the Red Sox this week. I'm not sure which day that is. Um, let's see, you know, Major League Baseball coming out and suspending, uh, Trevor Bauer for, uh, two full seasons with his, um, sexual assault situation. I'll be honest, I don't really want to get into that because it just makes me really uncomfortable. Um, so taking a look at Major League Baseball standings right now, the Red Sox will welcome in the Angels who are at 15-8, and eight, leading the American League West, two-and-a-half game lead over Seattle. Uh, the Yankees are off to a really good start. They've won nine in a row, nine out of ten, and they are 16-6, and game-and-a-half ahead of Toronto for first place in the AL East. The Minnesota Twins are at 13-9. and nine. They lead the Central by three games over the Cleveland Guardians. The Red Sox will play the White Sox later this week. White Sox are sitting at 8 and 13. In the National League, the uh, Yankees, or excuse me, the Mets are at 16 and 7. So both uh, New York teams are off to uh, flying starts. The Mets with a three game lead over the Marlins as they beat the Phillies late last night. The Brewers lead the Central 15 and 8. They are two games up on the St. Louis Cardinals. And then in the West, the Padres and the Dodgers both uh, atop the American League West with the Padres at 15-8 and eight and the Dodgers at 14-7. and seven. So I think that's going to do it for me this week. I know that we had a pretty long episode this week, but obviously there's a lot of sports to get to, a lot of stuff going on this time of the year. Um, so again, really looking forward to the Guest Friday conversation with Sean Montgomery, which uh, will be out on Friday. You guys can listen to it. Really excited to talk with Sean about some playoff hockey this week. So, you know, go Bruins, go Celtics. Hopefully the Celtics can figure some things out. Hopefully the Red Sox can start hitting. But, uh, you know, we'll see. But uh, hopefully everyone has a good rest of their week and uh, enjoy all the playoff action. All right, everyone. Have a good one.